Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. The title for today's sermon is A Surprising Response to Suffering, and we'll pick up reading from 1 Samuel 21, starting at verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen, that you have brought his fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Remember once again, though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's bow as we ask the Lord's help to consider this passage for us. Father, we come once again to you, and Lord, we just give you thanks for your mercy. We thank you for your, your spirit that you have, Lord, poured into our hearts, by which we now cry, Abba, Father, Lord, knowing that there was nothing within us in and of ourselves that would have drawn you to us, Lord. It was simply your mercy and grace that you set upon us in Christ, called us, Lord, though we were yet enemies of you, have now been called, are now called uh, children of the Most High. And so we pray that as we come, Lord, not only to be nourished by your word this morning, but also as we come to the table, Lord, to be reminded of what Christ has done, to be nourished by your grace. We just pray that our hearts are receptive, Lord, that they are soft and pliable before your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we might learn even as David um, experienced your deliverance in so many ways and gave testimony to that, Lord, that, that we too would be quick to give thanks and praise and to trust you when life seems to be falling apart, when we find ourselves in unexplainable um, persecution or chaos, Lord, that our our faith would hold fast to you, who are the unchanging one. And so we pray this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. Thank you. So we uh, see this morning 
the continuation of David's run for his life, his desperate attempt to get away from Saul and his murderous threats against him. And I'm sure many times David, well, we know many times David asked the question, why is this happening? What, what is the purpose of all of this? It, it must have seemed rather meaningless at various points for David. And as we consider the creation of God within the natural world, there are certain forms of life that actually require fire to flourish. And one example that I often think of is the, the jack pine. The cone falls to the ground, and actually this particular cone, as God has designed it, will not open and, and release the seed until fire has come through and scorched it to the point where it cracks and opens. And as that takes place, it will then sprout a new tree. And what seems to be meaningless in the fire, we find actually for the Christian, is designed to produce a certain kind of praise and a certain kind of de- dependence upon the Lord. It is not meaningless, though we can look and see how maybe at times we act foolishly, even sinfully, we doubt, we do things that we regret in moments of desperation, but we see the kind providence of God sustaining us, carrying us through. And that was certainly David's experience, even as we uh, will reflect a bit on the, the Psalms as well that come out of this time. It is so fascinating to me, if you've read through, I know I keep mentioning this, But if you've read through the chronological Bible reading plan, uh, one of my favorite portions of that reading plan is in Samuel, because as David's affliction increases, you have this whole cluster of psalms that begin being produced out of the life of David. And uh, clearly we see the, the situation before us. He has fled from the tabernacle, as it would seem, at Nob, where he received some bread. He received the sword of Goliath. And now, of all ironies, David decides that his chances are better in the camp of the enemy than they are in his own own homeland. That his, his chances of survival, he feels, are more likely with the enemy of his people than than with his own king and his own brothers and sisters. And so you can just imagine the scene, how bizarre this must have been. Up here, here's David. He's carrying the sword of Goliath, the giant who he had recently slain and cut off his head and carried it to Jerusalem. And now David comes fleeing as a refugee from his own country into no place other than the land of Gath, into the city of Gath. The very place that Goliath, we are told, had come from. And The king there, they no doubt recognize him as an outsider, as a Jew. And they begin to talk amongst themselves and they realize this is David. This is, there's almost this uh, sense of perhaps sarcasm, the king of Israel. And maybe they had heard the, uh, the number one hit song in Israel around that time that uh, Saul had killed his thousands and David his ten thousands and they had listening, they've been listening to this number one song as well as Philistines and enjoying it and they're like, wait a minute, this is the guy. This is the one about this, whom the song is singing. This is David. And 
what seemed like a good plan to David, he quickly realizes is a terrible plan and very, very well may cost him his life. And we're told that David, he has a sense of, uh, of fear and, and even trembling as he realizes they recognize him and they know full well who he is. We see, um, they, they, they realize this is the one whom the song is saying of. And we're told in verse 12, David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And so David, in a moment of desperation and of panic, he decides to pretend to be insane. And he begins babbling and he lets his drool run over his beard. He begins clawing at the door like he's an insane person. And they seem to fall for it. They, they think, okay, this guy has, has lost his mind. And probably in that culture, they would have many times associated insanity with, with demon possession or influence of even evil spirits, which might be part of the reason why the king is eager to get David out of his presence, to simply kill the man, for them would have been to potentially even release these evil spirits that are afflicting him and put themselves in danger, better to drive him out of the city. And almost this uh, element of humor here as well, as the king tells his officials, do I not lack madmen that you've brought this man to me? Why, why do I need more crazy people among the, the city of Gath? We have enough crazy people. Get this guy out of here. And what seems to be just a, a stroke of luck for David in that they fall for his, uh, his very bizarre performance, we realize is the kind providence of God that has preserved him once again from a very serious threat to his life. This would have been a trophy for the king of Gath. This would have been one of the most valiant men of Israel to have in his prison. And so it's quite miraculous that David escapes at all. And we find the beginning of 22 that David then flees and hides in the cave at Adullam. And his brothers, his father, they come to him. He begins collecting around himself. We have this picture of those who are in distress, everyone who's in debt, everyone who is bitter in soul. They begin flocking to David. It's almost this picture of, of Robin Hood. I'm sure many of you um, children, young folks, all of us are probably familiar with the story of Robin Hood, who is an outcast, he's an outlaw of the king, and he has his band of, of merry men that uh, hide in Sherwood Forest, and there he's able to try to pursue justice uh, as, a, as a, a wanted man. It's almost a picture of David here. But what I really want to spend the rest of our time considering is what is produced after David reflects back upon all that has just happened. Um, I was going to get Micah to load a, a little clip for me here. Um, what we have produced out of this, and you can go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 34. Uh, what would we hear coming from the cave as David sits there and reflects upon all that has just happened, how God has preserved him time and time again, and how he has been now saved from the hand of even the Philistines, who by all reason should have killed David when they had the chance. Um, so Psalm 34, and uh, maybe seems a little unusual to you, but uh, does any of the young folks here know what language the Old Testament was written in? What language did David write this psalm in? Does anyone know? The original language? We have it in English, but... <laughs> yeah, Ezra? 
Um, not for David. It was later translated to Latin. That's true, the Latin Vulgate. But the original Hebrew language, which is Hebrew, but I just gave you the answer. <laughs> so they would have spoke Hebrew. And this is a different language. It's a language you can actually learn. It takes a lot of work. I have not successfully been able to learn this language. But I wanted to play. So this is um, what it is. is Psalm 34 in Hebrew. And they have the, the strings. So this would have been likely playing with strings. And, um, and in this language, it's more of a, I mean, have the chant. But they have the English uh, down below. So Mike is going to play that for us. I just wanted you to hear it in the Hebrew with the English. And so you get the sense of this is a, a song. It's a, it's a poem. But it's meant as, as worship and praise to God. This was, we're told, at the beginning of the psalm in the superscription there, uh, a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. Uh, Abimelech being more of a, a title. So Achish is the king. Abimelech being like a, a leader or a ruler. So that he drove him out and he went away. So we're told specifically here in Psalm 34 that after that had all taken place, this was David's response. So Mike, if you want to just play that for us. Just try to read the words and, and you know, kind of feel the, the sense of, um, of poetry. Um, the Hebrew language is, is a really beautiful language in many ways. So here we go. Don't forget to turn the sound on. Oh, 
So that is something of what would have been the sound coming from this cave as David hides. And we, of course, have the English translation of this psalm, a response to suffering. Um, A few just quick things to note about the psalms in this particular one. Um, The psalms are... Of course, individual collections of poems and writings, 150 of them that we have, and from at least seven different authors. Now, we know um, several of the names that are given to us. David, um, Asaph, for example, Moses has a psalm, Solomon, Ethan, Heman, sons of Korah. Uh, There are anonymous psalms as well. But actually, 73 at least are attributed to David specifically. And I think a number of those have come out of his sufferings and trials that he experienced. And it's, it's fairly certain that actually more than uh, 73, because, for example, Psalm 1 and 2, the New Testament attributes to David, though we don't have directly in those Psalms an attribution to David. And so David was responsible for close to half of the Psalms, and the Psalms is the largest book in the Bible. It contains the largest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. It also contains the shortest chapter in the Bible. It's an incredible book, and uh, I've been working through uh, auditing, of course, with um, by uh, James Renahan on the Psalms. It's been tremendous, and he kind of, uh, speaking to pastors, he said, you know, a lot of you guys avoid the Psalms, preaching them, and I admit I have generally not preached a lot of psalms. I'm not competent in the Hebrew language. And just generally, sometimes we maybe think of them more for singing or for uh, reading. But I do want to look at this psalm together some this morning. And we also know something of this psalm. It's an acrostic psalm. So I'm sure even for you young kids or all of us at times have seen where you use a word or letters to help you remember Phrases. Uh, one of my favorite acrostics that I uh, use with uh, teaching is the word grace. So you have G-R-A-C-E, right? Spells grace. If you take each letter and you make uh, a sentence out of it. So God's riches at Christ's expense is an acrostic way to help you remember what grace means. Uh, that's an acrostic. So this psalm is an acrostic using the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And David uses that as a structure for this response in times of suffering. Um, It has been said that the Psalms, in many ways, are the father's prayer book that he prepared for his son, which is really an incredible way to consider the Psalms. It is a prayer book that God, the father, prepared through the sufferings of David, through men like Moses and the sons of Korah. But it was... For Christ, and we see Christ himself quoting the Psalms many times. And the Psalms, of course, point us to him and help us understand his life, his suffering, his resurrection and glory, his kingdom. So there are messianic Psalms that very clearly, explicitly um, point to Christ the Messiah. And this is actually one of those messianic Psalms. But I, I would agree that all the Psalms are messianic uh, implicitly, they, they imply truths of Christ. And so we can read them uh, in that way. And uh, probably didn't know, I just, as I said, learning the Psalms are also divided into five books. 
So yes, we have 150 psalms, but there are five distinct (coughs) books that were compiled quite possibly by Ezra or maybe Nehemiah for the use of worship. And they would have added in these superscriptions at the beginning. Um, Some of the, perhaps even like the the Selah, which was an indication for pause and reflection. They may have added in some of these elements for the use of worship. And so that's the case here as well. We have this description as for the psalm begins, um, which I believe was also part of the inspired text. And Psalm 34 and 37 bracket... Uh, four psalms that describe the innocent sufferer, and then 38 and 41 bracket the guilty sufferer. And so this is in book one of the psalms, of the five books, and we find it is a psalm of David, and we are told that it has come out of the situation where he fled for his life and he feigned madness um, before Achish, the king of Gath. So just... I know our time's going to run out way too fast for this morning. But just in looking at this, I want to just first consider um, David's testimony. And then we'll look at some of David's teaching. We can, of course, look at this in, in, in many different ways. But consider David's testimony after all that has happened to him. Um, in some ways, it's almost difficult to place this psalm with that situation because he doesn't mention it. You would almost think that that David's having a pretty good day in light of the psalm that we have before us. But in verse 1, we have the starting of really David's worship to God. His praise to Yahweh, the one who has delivered him from his trouble. It's a call to praise. And so in in many ways, we could say the, the ABCs, of David's response is that of worship to God in in adoration and praise in in even calling the congregation to worship the Lord. Perhaps as David's family, as the the riffraff of Israel began gathering to him, perhaps this was something he would teach those who had gathered around him. The ABCs of worship and dependence upon God. So we see, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David boasts in God after this close call with death numbers of times. He is not given over to despair. He's not given over to self-pity, but he directs his attention and praise to God in heaven who has delivered him. And he calls the congregation to magnify the Lord with me, exalt his name. And there's this picture of continually being in praise. He says, continually, I will make much of God. I will bless him. And this is so important for us as well, that we, we realize that there are times where it is easier perhaps to worship God, to praise Him, to thank Him, to, to make much of His name when things in our life maybe seem to be going quite well. But what about in the midst of storms? What about when things are not going well? I know many of, of us been, and you have been battling sickness, and that can be extremely exhausting and frustrating. And do we still take time to praise the Lord in the midst of sickness or economic setbacks or political unrest or injustice that we experience? Are we still able to lift our voice and praise to God at all times? Worship the one who is worthy. 
This is David's testimony, that he boasts in God alone. I know this past summer we had a lot of wildfires, and I um, didn't realize the, the wildflower we call a fireweed is called a fireweed because after a place burns, it also quickly grows and flourishes almost out of nowhere, it seems. And uh, perhaps you've noticed you know, some of the areas that burned over and these beautiful purple flowers come up. In many ways, that is something like the, the praise and worship of David here. It is this byproduct of the suffering and the, the trials he's experienced is a result of praise, of this beautiful sound of glory given to God in a call for worship. Or like the sandalwood that must first be crushed before it gives off its pleasant aroma. So the Christian at times, as they go through various forms of trial and tribulation, they give off the aroma of praise, the evidence that God's Spirit is within us. We see in the psalm that for the, the wicked, for the ungodly, theirs is the exact opposite. They, instead of producing praise and worship to God... We find in verse 21 that affliction slays the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Affliction for the ungodly has the, the, the effect of, of slaying, of destroying, of, of bringing to nothing. But for the godly, though it is not pleasant, it produces this resounding praise to God. Though it may be with tear Field eyes and with a broken voice, we can still lift up our voice to God. Even as we think of Job in the midst of tremendous loss, he would say, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Yet I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or in Job 13 12, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And we see David respond in like manner, and he gives testimony to this. Also, part of his testimony is not only a call to praise, but He bears witness that God has graciously saved him. In verse 4, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. So David recognizes that though he acted even foolishly at times, sinful at times. We saw last week how even a sense of regret that he had cost the priest Amalek and his family their lives because he had helped David and Saul's wrath against them. And I'm sure David, if he could have done that over, would have tried a different tactic, maybe just been more honest with the priest. We don't know exactly how he may have changed that. But, but despite all of David's Stumblings and fallings and shortcomings, he realizes that it was God who delivered him from all of his troubles. And he just describes himself in verse 6 as the, the poor man who cried and the Lord heard him. He is a man in desperate need and God was pleased to deliver him. And this imagery of the face of God that is Upon his servant, and as a result, their face radiates the glory of God. It brings us to mind the, the picture of Moses who went up onto the mountain and there beheld the glory of God. And as he comes down the mountain, his face is radiating with the glory of God. And the people say, Moses, put a veil over your face. It's terrifying to us. 
But here David is saying, as we look unto the Lord, as he sets his kindness upon us, his face for us, then we radiate back the goodness and glory of God. So God saved him graciously from all of his fears. He also saved him from all of his foes, all of his enemies. God continually has delivered David. And we have this picture of God also having graciously surrounded David. This picture of, in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamping around those who fear him and delivers them. And what an incredible thought, what an incredible testimony for David to say, yes, I at times was right in the midst of the camp of the enemy. I was within their clutches and grasp. They could have killed me. But, but, but around that, around my life, the Lord, the angel of the Lord, himself encamps and protects me. There's an amazing story in 2 Kings 6 that brings to mind this imagery as well. Elisha is being essentially hunted by the king that they are tired of his prophecies, tired of his faithfulness to God ultimately. And so they come against him with an army and his servant is petrified of what's going to happen to them. And in 2 Kings 6.16, Elisha responds, he says, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O God, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And God opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And this is a picture that David is giving. The the army of God, the angel of God, encamps around his servants. And though we at times will suffer, we will experience trials and tribulations, we must understand that we are not alone in that. God has not forsaken us in that. He is still there, very present, encamping around his people. And this was David's testimony of the Lord's faithfulness. And so this is something that we have to continually preach to ourselves, we have to cultivate this mindset within us when doubts arise, when we are tempted to conclude God has forsaken us, has abandoned us, that that these trials are, are meaningless, that we remind ourselves of these truths. We can turn to the Psalms and hear David's testimony and be encouraged and trust that we too will bear witness. And I'm sure many of you even today could bear witness of of how God has kept you, has preserved you, various trials you've gone through, times of loss, times of of difficulty, of uncertainty, and the Lord has held you fast. And we can bear testimony to one another and to our children and to a watching world. We see not only David's testimony in this psalm, but we also see David's teaching. And if you look down to verse 8, He is again calling us to a response, calling the hearer to taste and see that the Lord is good. And that the blessed man is the one who takes refuge in God to fear the Lord, David says. For those who fear him have no lack. Though the lions, perhaps even around the caves in which David hid, he would see the lions roaming about hungry, searching for food. And he says, we see the lions may suffer for hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And David is teaching now. He is 
calling, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good and seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards their cry. So David is teaching as well. He, he wants us to understand, not only hear his testimony of how God has preserved him and kept him, but to learn these truths that he, has, he himself is holding on to. That God is the portion of his people. And that we are called to taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste and see. Another place David would say in Psalm 16, 5, The Lord is my, cho- my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The Lord, he says, is my chosen portion, my cup. And David is calling us to also taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, you may read in a book that, that honey is sweet and you may you know, learn and study the, 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 the chemical makeup of honey and you may hear other people testify, yes, no, I've tried it. It is definitely very sweet. And that's one type of knowing, but then there's another type of knowing in which you get the spoon of honey and you dip it into the jar and you put the honey into your mouth and, and then you can say, oh, now I see, now I, I have tasted and seen that honey is sweet. And so David is calling here not just for a sort of head knowledge that we affirm true and biblical doctrine, but an experiential knowledge that has, has tested these truths, have walked with the Lord through the valley of the shadow of death, have experienced the Lord's steadfast love when all may seem to be falling apart around us. And sometimes we need to pause and reflect on how the Lord has sustained us, times when we have tasted and seen the Lord is good. Maybe it's a time of of doubt and your own heart is warring within you and you seem to be questioning everything that you thought was true about the, the Christian faith. And it's a terrible place to be in, to, to begin questioning the, the very truths on which you have built your life. And you begin praying and you begin studying and, and still there is this turmoil within you that, that keeps you up at night and seems to be gnawing at your soul that you cannot get peace I remember different times in my life having those sort of struggles. And I'm sure there'll be more to come. Sometimes it's as you're reading a passage of scripture and meditating upon it. That the, the peace of God, the, the joy of God, the assurance of his presence washes over you. And you know in your heart of hearts that this is true. That he is with me. That, that this is reality. And the spirit of God affirming to your spirit the truths of Scripture, and where there was once a restlessness in your soul, there is peace again and confidence and joy in the Lord. And you see, we have to sometimes wrestle through doubts and questions and get on our knees before God and open the Bible and seek counsel and prayer of friends and family. And the Lord is faithful to to give us those times of 
of insight and sustaining mercy. And then we can also say, I have tasted and seen the Lord is good. Or how he has sustained you in a time of loss or uncertainty. Or, you know, you're, I know some of you have recently moving as well. And that can be a, a very stressful time. And yet you, you're not sure how it's all going to come together. And you look back and see how the Lord has continued to provide for your needs. Taste and see, David says. The Lord is good. He is your portion. Experience the blessing that David describes. The Lord is my refuge. And David said, that is the blessed life. That's the blessed man. It harkens back to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Does not walk in the way of sinners. And, and David is saying, if, if you have put your trust in God, if you have made the Lord your refuge, listen to me. Hear what I'm saying. This is the blessed man. And that if you desire life, if you love many days, and if you want to see good, if that is what you want, which is, I think, instinctive to us as humans to desire these things, then David says, listen to me. Let me teach you the fear of the Lord. If you want to experience life, then then. Give yourself to the obedience of God's word, to trusting in his precepts, keeping your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil. Don't give yourself over to evil, to sin. Flee from it. Flee to Christ. Pursue peace. Because verse 15 says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. And we realize, even as David did, that In and of ourselves, we cannot attain the righteousness required to come before God. He must be speaking ultimately of another righteous one. But the beauty of the gospel is as we are hidden in Christ, declared righteous, justified, we are also called then from this position of adoption to pursue righteousness, to pursue obedience to God's word. And it's very interesting, actually, Peter in his letter quotes a number of times from Psalm 34. And as we know, Peter is also writing to suffering and hurting Christians. Some have even observed that Peter very well may have been meditating upon Psalm 34 as he sat down and wrote his letter um, to the, the Christians who are suffering. And so Peter would actually quote this portion of the psalm as well. And, and he would call the early church to, to turn from evil and make reference to, uh, in 1 Peter 2.1, you'll pick up some of the, the same wording here from Peter from Psalm 34. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, Peter says. And clearly he, he's pulling from what David is saying. Put away sin and deceit. And at times we may think when, when life is difficult, when we are struggling, when we feel alone, we feel abandoned, then that is the time where we are excused from Christian behavior. That, that I'm allowed to be angry with my spouse. I'm allowed to be short-tempered with the children. I'm allowed to be uh, bitter about the, my plans having not turned out uh, how I wanted them to, or or how um, you know that my 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 health isn't what I want it to be, and we we start to feel ourselves entitled to sinful behavior, sinful thinking. And David is urging, he's saying, no, even in the midst of of those sort of difficult times, 
Continue to walk in godliness. Know that the eyes of the Lord are upon his children. His ears are open to their cry. Hear the teaching of David to the saints. And we are also told the Lord will provide for us. What an incredible promise that the Lord knows, as as Jesus would say in, uh, in Luke, that we're not to be anxious about the things of tomorrow, that God cares for the birds of the air. He clothes the flowers more beautifully than Solomon's courts. Is he not able to provide for us our needs as well? Do not be anxious, Jesus says. Seek first the kingdom of God, and, and those things will be added to you. And David says, my experience has been the same. Whether it was the bread at the temple that I ate and it sustained me, the Lord has provided for the needs that I have. David also gives instruction not only for the saints, but he gives instruction for the wicked and teaching for the, in regards to the wicked in verse 16, and I've already seen this a little bit, but we have this, this stark contrast, which is so common in the Psalms. In verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory from them, uh, from the earth. And we find, um, we read earlier in verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. And so we must understand that the face of God is against those who rebel against his ways. And we may look around and think, well, it doesn't seem like it. It seems like that that wickedness is able to flourish and, and continue to go on unchecked. But we have to step back and see the, the bigger picture. God, in his grace, has, ex- has granted to man a season of, of opportunity to repent and believe the gospel. But even today, we see many times various forms of God's immediate judgment upon wickedness. But we know finally there will be a day, a great day of the Lord, in which his wrath will be poured out completely upon all who have not taken refuge in Christ. They will be consumed. To them, the Lord describes himself as a lion that is hunting his prey. Or a warrior who has drawn his sword or pulled back his bow and his his arrow is ready. The wrath of God against wickedness is not to be forgotten or overlooked. We find that he will slay the wicked. And it is a, a terrifying reminder of God's fury against ungodliness. Let us not ever dabble in ungodliness to entertain sin as though it is a small matter. And many people think, well, hell itself will simply be the absence of God. It's just a place where God is not. That is hell. No, hell is a place where the full, unmitigated wrath of God is poured out upon the ungodly forever and ever. There is not the lack of God's presence there, but it is the fullness of God's wrath and indignation. There is the lack of God's grace and mercy and kindness towards them. And so I urge you, if you have not fled to Christ for refuge, if you are still hoping that your good deeds will will hopefully gain you some merit as you stand before the King of glory, to abandon that hope in anything that you have done or anything by comparing yourself to your neighbor, flee to Christ, for he alone is the refuge 
for the children of God. And so we see David's testimony. We see David's teaching here to the saints and also to the wicked. But David also alludes to something else that might at first seem very strange to us living in our modern day. In our day, people are generally just as happy to to burn their bodies as they are to bury them. But that would have been something that would have been rather abhorrent to the Jewish mindset. And we get this picture of God preserving and keeping his servant. David describes in verse 20, he, well, verse 19, sorry, first, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. We think, hmm, that's an interesting way to describe the Lord's preservation. And there's so many things in those verses, but let us just consider this imagery of the Lord having kept all of David's bones. Not one of them is broken. Um, To that point, at least in his life, it would seem David was bearing testimony of the Lord's faithfulness. But it's more than just not having a broken bone. And I was helped a lot by um, Pastor David Matthias. He um, brought some of these things out in regards to the imagery here that for the Jewish people would have been so clear for us is rather uh, unclear. But think for a moment how the bones of our body are foundational to who we are physically. They, they give shape and structure to our bodies. And this imagery of keeping the bones, we think about Joseph in Genesis 50, we find as Joseph is nearing the end of his life in Egypt. He has seen the Lord's deliverance. He has seen the Lord's faithfulness. Joseph makes what to us seems like a very strange request. He asks that when they go up out of Egypt, that they take his bones with them, that he might be laid to rest in the promised land that God has given his people. We think, hmm, that seems unusual. It's not, you know, the first thing I would think of on my deathbed is to make sure that my bones go into a specific location to be buried there. But we find in Exodus 13, uh, 19, it says, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall bring up my bones from here with you. And so for the Jewish people, the imagery of the bones being preserved was very important. And added to that, we have in Exodus 12, as God's giving instruction for the Passover lamb and how they are to prepare the lamb, we read that it shall be eaten in a single house. In Exodus 12, 46, it shall be eaten in a single house. You shall not bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house. You shall not break any bone of it. And all the congregation of Israel shall celebrate this. So you have in the Jewish mind this importance of the bones, the representation of them being buried in the land that God has promised. The Passover lamb, we're told, was to be prepared in such a way that none of its bones were broken. And what does all of this mean? We, we continue on even further in, in, in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 37, we looked at not long ago. There, Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones, and God asks him if these bones can live. And Ezekiel is like, well, Lord, you know. And and God tells Ezekiel, I want you then to prophesy, Ezekiel. Prophesy over these bones. And as he does, the 
these dry bones begin rattling and upon them are brought flesh and sinews and they stand up and they are suddenly a mighty army before the Lord. Uh, David Matthias made this comment. He said, intact bones, kept bones, unbroken bones represent the hope of resurrection that God in his perfect timing will reassemble the bones and restore the flesh and give breath and bring dry bones back to full life with resurrection power. You see, why did Joseph want the bones there in the promised land? And even Hebrews makes mention to this as an act of faith. Because Joseph understood something of the resurrection. That when his body was raised up, he wanted to be standing among God's people in God's land. An incredible picture of faith. These bones will live. But furthermore, not only this imagery of resurrection and David alluding to the preserving of his bones, which means that God's people are not exempt from death. They're not exempt from suffering. They will die. They will rot. But these bones will be raised up. And it's with all of this imagery coming together that John would write in John 1936, as he considers the events of the cross, as he considers the dying of the Passover lamb, John would say, for these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And so David here in Psalm 34, and this is why this is called the Messianic Psalm, because John quotes it and says, that was speaking of Christ. He is the Passover lamb. He is the resurrection and the life. And those who put their hope in Christ will be raised up. Now we are raised spiritually to live with him, though our bodies outwardly waste away, but we still have the hope of also our bodies being raised up to live with Christ because he has been broken. His flesh was torn. His body, his bones were not broken. His flesh was broken. His blood was poured out that we might live. And in light of such a hope, how can anything come against the people of God? Yes, they might destroy us. They might, they might kill this body. But God will be pleased to raise it up. And we will live with Christ. And so Paul the Apostle would look at all of this and he would say, what, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own, own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. We are to be a people rejoicing in the faithfulness and the steadfastness of God, looking even beyond times of suffering, of struggle, of turmoil, of, of uncertainty, of disappointment, and we continually, as David did, cast ourselves upon the Lord, and we trust that as we have hidden in Christ, we are being made more and more into his likeness. We are made new creatures in Christ. 
And we will stand with Christ in a new heavens and a new earth, new bodies transformed into the likeness of his glorious body. And so let us press on. Let us learn to daily taste and see that the Lord is good. And we have opportunity this morning to taste and see through one of the ordinances that God has given to us in the Lord's table. God in his mercy, knowing we are now flesh and blood, we are so affected by our five senses, he has given us something in which we may take and eat, and we may taste with our mouths and be reminded of the Lord Jesus Christ, how his body was kept by God and raised up in newness of life, and he will certainly come again. And so I'll pray, and then we will prepare to take the Lord's table together. If you are a baptized believer here this morning in Christ, then I want to invite you to come to the table. And if you have not been baptized, then I would urge you to, to pursue that. In many ways, is the first instruction given to the new convert that Peter said to the people at Pentecost when they asked him, okay, we're hearing what you're saying, Peter, but what do we do about all of that? I, I, I want to be forgiven. I want to be one of those who stand in the congregation of God. He says, repent then and be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus. And so I urge you, if you have not been baptized, to be baptized in the name of Christ. And let us pray and we will prepare then for the Lord's table. Father in heaven, we, Lord, marvel at your wisdom. Lord, we realize how uh, there are so many times that we, um, we just completely miss the providence of your care and protection. Lord, even knowing that by the word of your power, you uphold the universe. And, and so we just pray that you help us to be, Lord, a people that are quicker to, to praise you and to give thanks even in the midst of storms and trials and disappointments, Lord, that that your spirit would produce within us this unique type of worship that we witness in the Psalms here, that we would heed the instructions of your word, keep us from evil, from, Lord, using our tongues to tear down, Lord, to make light of sin. God, we pray that you would give us an increased appetite to truly taste and see that you are good. As we come to your word throughout the week and times of prayer and family worship, things that we listen to, that in all of that there would be this, this, Lord, just unquenchable hunger and thirst to know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we pray your blessing upon the table now as you partake upon the cup and the bread. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the faithfulness of of all of your promises, even what David foresaw, Lord, coming true in the way you guarded over Christ, even as he laid down his life as our Passover lamb, and how you raised him up on the third day, victorious over sin and death. And Lord, help us then to walk in the light as you are in the light. And I ask this all now in Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. 
And we pray that the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.